too far. First one, 1839. So, you know, when a few of us were a bit young. And a long, long time ago, back in 1839, is when the first selfie was ever taken. Now, it wasn't called a selfie at that stage. It's just the first documented time that we have of someone using a very, very early stage camera to take a photo of themselves. Pretty much from whenever cameras have existed, people have been taking photos of themselves. Uh, so that was 1839. That's the first documented selfie. Uh, skip forward to 1925, and it's the first evidence that we have of there being some kind of homemade selfie sticks. Uh, it's actually someone sent this through because someone talked about selfie, about selfie sticks being invented, and, you know, and you'll get to where that comes up very shortly. And just someone sent a photo through of their great-grandfather and their parents, and you can see this family standing there grinning and a great big stick in the photo because they've done that bad mistake of getting the stick in the photo itself. So, 1925, it's very clear that some people were finding creative ways to take photos. Uh, go ahead to 1995. I love this one. A Japanese selfie stick is listed as one of 101 unuseless. Great word. Unuseless inventions. Not exactly useful, but not entirely useless. Great word, unuseless. So take that with you. Get nothing else from today. Take the word unuseless with you. And I think that is an apt description of a selfie stick. Not exactly useful, but not entirely useless. Uh, 2005, and this is where someone came out and patented the design for a selfie stick. It's the first time that someone tried to claim that they invented it and actually managed to get it through the patent office. Obviously, it was that particular style and design. And so now whenever people ask, when was it invented? They say 2005, even though it's very clearly been around for much longer than that. But 2005, someone actually patented the design. And then skip forward to 2014. The selfie stick is the gift of the Christmas period. Time magazine listed it as one of top two inventions that, you know, let's just forget for the moment that it wasn't invented in 2014. Uh, by 2014, the selfie stick had made it. It was mainstream and it was considered to be one of the top two inventions that year. What is the progression of the selfie stick? say about us and about our culture and about the world we live in today? Well, actually, what they're starting to do, sociologists are starting to uh, label this time in it. They like to label things. Everyone likes to label things. And so for many years, there's been different labels for what our culture was. What, what age are we in? And generally speaking now, sociologists are describing the age that we're in now as the age of the individual especially in the West. And sociologists generally focus on the West for good or for bad. And so in the West in particular, there's a real focus and a real emphasis on the individual. Every, every person is really focused on themselves, on their own rules and their own rights, on their own truth. Uh, marketing. Marketing used to be mass, and it was kind of like get it on the radio, get a message that's going to kind of spread to as many as you can, and, and just kind of get it out there and hope that enough people follow it. 
Now with our computers and our phones listening to us uh, and knowing exactly what's going on, we can actually have ads targeted to individuals. Gone are the days where you actually want it to spread wide and far just because you've got a big message. It's hyper-focused on the individual. Uh, another example of how this sort of plays out, how the big has kind of come into the small, is the TV show MASH. Who was around and who watched MASH when it was sort of out the first time? Or who's seen it? Who has seen it since it came out? Yes, I've, I've seen it since it came out. Okay, the last episode of MASH was watched by one in three Americans. So on the day that it was released, one in three Americans watched the last episode of MASH. So that's, you know, 33% of Americans. Your top TV shows today, the ones that garner the most interest, the most focus, are generally seen by, at best, 1% of a population. It's hyper-focused on the individual. And, and individual people are choosing individual shows and it's a much smaller space. People like to think of themselves and having your own thoughts and spaces, and it's really come to that. Now, interestingly, if you actually had to study, uh, what does this do to us? What does this focus on the individual do? What's changed? What's moved? What's shifted? Uh, what is actually coming out very clearly is that though we might be focusing more and more on the individual, and as the focus on an individual increases, mental health outcomes are far worse. Uh, again, sociologists and psychologists and psychiatrists and anyologists, just add, add an, an ist at the end, they're all finding that the rates of loneliness are going through the roof. Now, interestingly, suicide and suicide ideation doesn't increase as much. Everyone thinks it does, but actually that's not what the evidence shows. But depression does. So having it go beyond that, not so much, but depression has definitely increased. It's probably been underreported in previous decades, in previous times, but certainly as individualism increases, loneliness absolutely follows. One thing I found interesting, though, so if you get a collectivist culture, that's a culture that's actually focused more on the collective group than it is on the individual. Uh, they don't have lower rates of depression necessarily, it's just experienced differently. In fact, the best outcomes, uh, I found a couple of studies that's, that both came out with the same thing. The best outcomes seem to be in, in cultures that value the individual, but the individual chooses to act collectively. So let me say that again. So the best outcomes aren't just being in an individualist culture and focusing on the individual. And the best outcomes aren't being in a collectivist culture and focusing on the collective. The best mental health outcomes seem to come in a culture that allows you to have your own individual sense of self and expression, but where you choose to embrace and live in a more collectivist way. You choose to engage in your broader community. You choose to be involved in something beyond yourself. What's all this got to do with becoming the church? Well, this is the series that we've been kicking off. It's going to be for the first few months of the year. We're really going back to the story of Acts and digging into Acts. And what was it that made the early church explode? What, what was it that sort of they sort of went with and went from being this fledgling little group of people to being a church that would take over the world, that would spread 
to all four corners of the world. What was going on in those early days and what aspects of that what might we be able to learn from as we look to rebuild as a church here in Austin Cove? So last week, uh, we picked up last week, we had a group of 120, 120 Jewish people and something crazy happens and 3,000 people come to know Jesus in one moment. We go from this little huddle of 120 and an explosion of Christians come in one place in one moment. And now we've got about 3,120 people. Now, imagine that happened for a second. And I said this last week. I don't know what we would do. If we had 3,000 people become a Christian tonight, what would, how would you actually structure? How would you function? How would you go about like, trying to connect that? That would just be crazy. I can't imagine for a moment what it would have been like for that group. Now, what's interesting about this is at the moment, at this stage, that 3,120 people, they are all Jewish. And so that will be important as we start to look at things moving forward. But the passage that we're looking at today is a direct continuation of the passage we looked at last week. It's not a new chapter. It's not a new section. It immediately follows on from what we were looking at last week. So if you have your Bibles, uh, it's a very, very common passage. It's probably one of the most preached passages in the church because every church would love to look like this passage. Uh, So let's dig in. I'm going to read through it first. And then I'm going to pick through a few of the pieces that are important for us uh, to really get a gist of what was going on and why it might be important. So it's Acts chapter 2, looking at verses 42 through to verse 47. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship. Who's the they? This is that 3,120 people. Breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being This is the quintessential picture of the church that every church would love to be, would love to look like this. We'll get to whether or not that's realistic and how we can sort of work through that as we go. But as we get started, I'm going to reiterate again. So who's the they? What's going on? This is 3,120-ish people uh, that have all just had uh, this amazing experience of the Spirit moving. And what do they do? What's their next steps? How do they go from being this group to this group that gets scattered and sent out to the four corners of the globe? Well, the first thing it talks about is the fact that they devoted themselves. And the word devoted there is a real, it's a strong word. It's not just, yeah, they kind of thought about the apostles' teaching when it suited their schedule. No, this is they devoted, they devoured, they made it their focus, their preference. They, they woke up in the mornings and before they went to bed at night and across the day, they found times to devote themselves. But interestingly, what did they devote themselves to? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, this is a group of Jewish people. It would have been really easy for them to predominantly focus in on the Jewish scriptures. And that's what they would have grown up doing. 
But as they were getting to know, now that's not to say that those Jewish scriptures are important. In fact, they know their Jewish scriptures better than we know them. So partly it's because they already know the Jewish scriptures. But partly it's when they're first coming to know what it means to follow Jesus. They really needed to focus in on understanding. How does Jesus change things? How does my life look different now that I'm a Jesus follower? What are the things that Jesus taught that I can see are different to what I grew up knowing? Now, whether it be that you grew up Jewish, and I, I, don't, I can't speak for that, I don't know that if anyone here is Jewish, but if you grew up Jewish, or whether you grew up going to church, or you grew up with no connection to church whatsoever. One of the things that we see is that when someone decides to follow Jesus, it's really important to dig into and to learn. How does my life look different through the lens of the teaching of Jesus? They weren't following the law. They were discovering what it meant to have freedom in Christ. So this is real freedom. This is not just, I'm free to do what I want when I want, which is the mantra of the individualist culture. The individualist culture would say that you've got freedom only when you get to make your own decisions about everything. And that's what freedom looks like. And yet the outcome of that is incredible loneliness, incredible disconnection amongst our community. We're not necessarily seeing that total freedom of the individual leading to better outcomes in our culture and community. There are some individuals who love it because they end up on the top of the tree. And then a whole lot of individuals find themselves pressed out. So what do they do? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to a word that we don't really use much today. It's really only used in church. You can probably put the word community there. It would be a better word for it. They devoted themselves to fellowship. Though I will leave the word fellowship there for a reason because it's fellowship. It's a connection of people. They devoted themselves to one another. There was this sense that they knew they had to be in this journey together. One thing that is very, very clear in the early church was there was a radical connection between the followers of Jesus. The idea that you can follow Jesus alone, the idea that you can follow Jesus by yourself and just go off and do that, is not found in the Scriptures. Now, there are times and there are seasons in life where that happens. There are times when you're sick. There are times when you're unable to actually be a part of a broader... There, there are times when just because of the season of life, you're in regularly getting along. And I'm not even talking about... This is not talking about Sunday. This is being a part of a group of followers of Jesus in ways that are just not... Yeah, I kind of fit it in when it fits my schedule. A bit like what I said before with the reading. They were devoted to one another. They recognize that if I really focus on another person and that person really focuses on that person, that person focuses on another and that person focuses on me, we all get looked after. But if every individual just tries to look after their individual selves, you don't get that sense of church and community. It's a devotion to the broader Christian collective. And it's devoted. They're devoted to one another. 
Uh, they devoted themselves to breaking bread. I love this one, probably a bit too much. They devoted themselves to breaking bread. This was, it was communion, but it wasn't only communion. This was the idea of eating together, finding excuses to eat with other Christians. Uh, finding excuses to have dinner or lunch or breakfast or afternoon tea or what are the, any of the times that we might have. It, it's finding ways to incorporate food in the gatherings that they already had. There's something about it. I, I know that many of you will have experienced this. There's, there's something that breaks down when you actually sit around a table together and just chat and just eat and just laugh. And it's not structured or forced or focused. You're just having a meal together. It creates community. And they did this a lot. I mean, it, it, it seems to make it sound like they did this every day. Probably not realistic for us today. Uh, remembering back then, everyone lived much closer, everyone interacted in a much closer. Cars didn't exist, so you weren't driving 15, 20, 30 k's to work. Uh, you were all living in a much closer proximity that made this kind of life easier. But the reality is, is if we're going to say we can't do that today, we also have to look at the realities of what's that going to do to the way that we actually follow Jesus. How are we going to circumvent and counteract those things? It's going to require intentionality. They, they devoted themselves to prayer. Prayer wasn't an afterthought. It wasn't the thing they did when they remembered they hadn't done it for a while. This was something that was just there right on the edge of their minds at all times. It was one of the first things they did when something came up and there was an issue. What do you do? Oh, let's pray about it. It was just something that was part of their collective experience. Uh, again, most of the research, most of the evidence shows it wasn't your Western kind of prayer that we like today, which is the, the quiet and simple, just I'm just going to close my eyes. And there was all kinds of prayer that took it in that place. And it was, it was alive and it was joyful and experiential. And it was just kind of understood and expected. And it's one of the things in our, it's certainly in Baptist churches, uh, we struggle with prayer. We, we're so focused and worried about saying the wrong things or, or not quite being, I'm not very good at prayer, so I'm not going to pray it often. But the early church was a radically prayerful church. And it just oozed from them in their life and their faith and their expression of it. And then we have this, and this is just an incredible picture right, that I, I can't imagine what this would have been like at the time. It's one of those ones we'd love to have, but it's so hard to actually bring about in, the, in our world today. They were filled with awe at the signs and wonders. The believers were together. They were just together all the time. Like They just found reasons and excuses to be together. It wasn't like they saw each other once a month, once every six weeks, or once every three months, or whatever it might be. This was like a, an everyday experience. When someone had need, they sold property and they gave generously because they didn't see their possessions as their own. They, they saw it as being something they were gifted and blessed by God. And so when someone else clearly had a need, they would sell what they had so that they could offer that in that place. It wasn't about building individual wealth. And that's one of the, one of the biggest challenges I would say we have in our Western culture. And, I'm, and then I have to admit that this is an area that I would struggle and I do struggle in is we are so hyper-focused on our own comfort and ease. And I live an incredibly comfortable life. And I read this passage from time to time and go, ooh, 
Like the reality is if, if you own a house in Australia, not everyone here does, but if you do, you're, you're in, I think I worked it out, as to the top 3 to 5% of the world in terms of wealth. It's incredible how fortunate we are in our Western culture. And yet we see so clearly in the early church, they didn't see anything as their own. They found ways to make sure that those who were in the church were met and that even those within the community, they didn't want to leave people behind. And they met every day. So we're going to start meeting every day. They met every day outside the temple and they met regularly in homes. So are we able to do that? No. But that's, it's actually not realistic in our current culture. It's not. But here's what I do read this, and I'm always challenged by this whenever I read this passage. Meeting together regularly wasn't an option. It, just, it was just what was done. It was the idea of they prioritised and made sure that they were deeply embedded in each other's lives. It's almost like they didn't even need to program it. Like we program these things on oh, Sunday morning, come along to church, our oh, life group, come along. Like we, we create spaces in our culture and maybe that's our answer of how we try and do this well. But in, in the early church, it just seems like this was natural. Like they were just in each other's lives. And it was a priority and it was a focus. And they went to each other's homes. I mean, I, I know some will be like mortified at the thought of someone actually coming to their house. Like, my house is my castle and I'm just, I'm safe when I'm there and I, I'll go to something. But actually, oh, others, that's sort of what I like to do. And that's okay. I'm not saying you're wrong for feeling that way. But you can't read this story of what the early church was like and not see how radically oriented towards one another that they were. It's just what it meant to follow Jesus. And what we then see, and this is the encouragement, and this is the, wouldn't it be great to get to this point? It says, the Lord added to their number once every year. The Lord added to their number, yeah, every now and then. No, the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. Now, again, I want to pause for a moment and reiterate, this was a particular experience in a particular time for a particular purpose. I'm actually not convinced that, that this was expected to be the ongoing forever expression of exactly what it looked like. But we can certainly see from this an intentionality and a focus on some key things. And that when the church, and the church was not just this body, it wasn't like a building, it was the church, when the people, when the people owned these things, the Lord added to their number and grew them and sent them and, and encouraged them to go out. One of the things that's labelled at this passage, one of the questions that's asked is, where's the evangelism? Isn't it great they all did this stuff together and the church was huddled together and the church met together? What about those people that were out in the community? What about them that they didn't... This doesn't talk about the going out and sharing the gospel. This doesn't talk about what actually happened to... How did this go from being a group of Jewish people to the Gentiles? Well, there's a couple of things I want to say to that that helps us to sort of hone in here. Firstly... And this is something I am convinced of. Before they could build out, they had to build in. 
They've gone from having 120 to having 3,120 people following Jesus. They actually had to do some work preparing themselves, their hearts, their minds, and really get ready so that when they went out, they were actually ready for what they would come across. One of the things that we've been talking about as a church over the last year or so is that we're really wanting to focus, we don't want to forget and not be out in our community. But we know that part of our season at the moment is actually really making sure that we've kind of caught the vision and the mission that God has for us and, and that we are trying to really build our teams and build those expressions and, and actually be ready and prepared to do some work on us so that we're ready as we step out again to welcome people into this space. So before they could build out, they had to build in. Secondly, and this is actually abundant as you go through, uh, people were actually intrigued by this countercultural living. This was not necessarily the norm at the time. This kind of living went against Roman culture. It went against a lot of the culture that was in place. In fact, if you actually look at the history of Roman culture, it was actually quite, it didn't, it wasn't meant to be about the individual. It was actually about those in power. And so individuals had no rights whatsoever. It just wasn't a thing. But you were very focused. If you had power, you just looked after keeping power. And if you were in the slums, if you were down, down, downtrodden, you just stayed down there. But the church was one of the first groups to actually go, you know, we've got no classes in the church. When you come along to church, whether you are the richest of the rich or you're the slave of that person, you are equal in the church. And it really removed a lot of those things. And so what was really apparent was that people were interested in the fact the church was living differently. Now, not everybody. Last week, we said 3,000 people came to follow Jesus. We're not told how big the crowd was. It could have been 10,000 people and only 3,000 came to know Jesus. It could have been 4,000 and only 3,000. What is clear is it doesn't seem that everybody who sees this culture thinks it's great. But some do. And so in our world today, one of the realities that we have to face as a church and as the church is the church isn't going to, and it doesn't anymore. For a long time, the church and culture have been very, very closely linked. And that's definitely dissipating. And so one of the challenges for the church is it's really easy for us to kind of get pulled towards and go, oh, we just need to look more like the culture and do things more like that. But actually the reality is where the things the culture is moving towards are actually faithful to God, that's fine. Where the way the culture is moving is not faithful to God, we have to be bold enough to say we're actually going to look different. We're going to be countercultural. In those ways. And some are going to like it and some are not. And that's okay. And then finally, Acts 2 is not the whole story. Acts 2 was one time amongst the broader picture. And what actually happens not long after this, you know, a little while later, the whole church of Jerusalem gets scattered. They actually get sent all over the, all over the world. And that's kind of where it actually really expands. And Paul starts going out on his journeys and he starts connecting with Gentiles and beyond the Jewish church starts to actually enter in. And we're going to cover that as we go over the next few weeks because that's all through the story of Acts. So Acts 2 is not the whole story. And when we read this passage and we go, if we can just look like this, we actually miss the reality that it's actually not meant to be just this. This is one experience at one time 
that we can glean some fairly significant principles from. And it would be great to look half like that church, being, just being honest. But when you read this, it's just, I get goosebumps at the thought of, wow, what would it be like to experience this? But Acts 2 is not the whole story. Come back for the rest of the next month and you'll hear the rest of the story. Here's the key takeaway for today. The church collective, not individual Christians, is who Jesus left behind to complete his mission. The church collective, the body of the church, the church together, was always Jesus' plan to change the world. Now, we all live individual lives. We're in our individual workplaces. We're in our individual homes. We have our individual friends. Absolutely, we have a whole lot of individual things. But littered throughout the book of Acts is a very clear understanding that there's something special about the community that the church is meant to experience. And the idea that individual Christians would always be finding ways to be connected in deep ways in their local church. Because real life change comes from a commitment to deep community, not the whims of individual passion. Your, your individual passions and desires will ebb and flow and they will wane and change and move and shift over time. And that's okay. And so it's really important to have those people in your life that wherever your individual passions might take you and things might move and shift, they can remind you to come back to the person of Jesus. And they can help you look through the lens of, is this change that I've kind of got in my own thoughts and my own desires, is that something that's actually in line with the teachings of Jesus? Is that in line with what God would have for me? Or is this just something that I'm feeling at the moment and whether or not I should actually look to explore this or express this? And it's really easy. Have you found that it's really easy to convince yourself of something? Okay, It's really easy to convince yourself that the way you see things is right. You don't really need to do much change or convincing of yourself. You need those people to actually help you see whether or not your own individual expressions and thoughts and ways are actually in line with what God would have for your life. So a few points to take away, a few reflection questions. Firstly, uh, living exactly like this is unrealistic. You're not going to be meeting in the temple courts every day. We're a long way from the temple. So, okay, rule that one out. Also, meeting every day is actually not realistic, at least not in this large... You might have some Christians on your street. You might have some Christians in your community. You might have some friends, and you can make sure each week you're organising a coffee catch-up or a group, or you've got people in your workplace that you can... They don't, they don't have to go to your church. It's okay to see Christians elsewhere. Just do it intentionally. And make sure that it's regular and it's not something that just fits in when it fits your life. Make it a priority, not something that just happens. That's realistic. Making Christian community a priority. Where do you find yourself? retreating into yourself? Where do you find yourself kind of closing up? What, what are the areas that you're kind of like, 
I'm just, I'm just going to close down here. I'm just going to sort of come back into myself. What's one step you could take towards community? What's one step you could take towards opening up in those areas? Oh, no, no, but I'm, I'm, I'm comfortable here. Like, it's nice because I exist here and I'm the only person I can trust. That might be your experience. So what's one step? Not what's 30 steps, not what's going to look like in 10 years' time when it's all perfect. What's one step you can take towards community? Uh, where might you be able to be vulnerable? We love being vulnerable. Everybody loves being vulnerable. Jesus was regularly vulnerable. He opened himself up. Jesus went to the cross. What's more vulnerable than giving your life for the world? Being Christian is being vulnerable. Now, it's not just willy-nilly vulnerability all the time without any protective barriers. That would be unsafe and that would be unkind. So you need to work out for yourself what is appropriate. But where could you maybe take one step towards being slightly more vulnerable in an appropriate space? Mark Sayers is a bit of a sociologist and theologian and all kinds of other things. Uh, he says this, Christian faith is always a community practice. Christian faith is always a community practice. Even Paul, who went out on his own missionary trips with a small group and would go and do things, he always, basically, any time he got to a place, he started a church. Like, that was just what he did. He just, he started a group of community. He found a way to gather Christians together and do life together in deep ways. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us in our contemporary culture where the individual is king in so many ways. Help us as the church to find appropriate ways to live differently. Help each of us as individuals to find ways to live for others, to serve others, to love others, to know others. And to find expressions of this kind of life that turns the world upside down. We pray for our church here in Austin Cove. May we... May we live differently in South Yandra. May we live differently in the Shire of Murray. May we live differently in the Peel region. May we live differently in Western Australia. In ways that make a difference for your kingdom. Help us to live this day and every day. That your kingdom would come and your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.